Welcome to POP, the sermon podcast for Peace Lutheran Church in Gehenna, with Pastors Doug Warburton and Tony Katko. So we're continuing our sermon series on this book, Didn't See It Coming, by Carrie Newhoff, overcoming the seven greatest challenges that no one expects and everyone experiences. And he basically deals throughout this book, and hopefully some of you have picked up a copy and are reading along, um, but he, he deals with things that as we get older, we find that we kind of fall into and we don't uh, never saw it coming. And so today we're talking about the word compromise, but let me say first and foremost, I met Carrie uh, long, I guess it was right around when COVID hit. He was leading, there's a uh, conference that the Lutheran Church put, puts on for larger churches called the Large Church Conference, go figure. And he was one of the presenters and was supposed to meet him in person and be there, but unfortunately COVID canceled it and so it became virtual. And I didn't know anything about him and I was kind of skeptical, like who is this guy? And then I instantly became a fan because he told us his hobbies and he is a cyclist and not, didn't stop there. He has a big green egg. So I instantly, I didn't care what he had to say. I liked the guy. Uh, he is Canadian. Um, but uh, so today he, we get into this word compromise. And compromise, it, it's not like actually what we just prayed for, that we pray that we compromise with people. That's a healthy use of the word. He in the book talks about how we find ourselves as we get older compromising with some of our standards and values, that we can kind of gradually find ourselves becoming and acting in ways that we're not a fan of, that we kind of slipped into along the way. Now, it's easy to identify some public figures that we know have fallen into compromising positions, so to speak. Years ago, we used to lead a conference here, virtual conference called the Willow Creek Summit. Some of you may remember that, and it was uh, led by a humongous church, Willow Creek in Chicago, who does great ministry. But their leader was a very charismatic leader named Bill Hybels. And Bill was one of the ones that, uh, even though his leadership was very effective, fell into some compromising situations and had to leave the church. It's not hard for us to identify politicians or even presidents that we've seen with some compromising behavior. Whichever party you're a part of, we've seen it on all sides. We know the Baptist church is struggling with some of its leadership and compromising positions. But... Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, all churches have found themselves with leaders who've kind of fallen away from what they claimed to be. But it's not, it's easy for us to lift up these public figures and keep ourselves at bay from it because we say, well, I haven't done that, right? But I think we all, if we're honest, kind of find ourselves falling into some compromises along the way that we know might go against what we claim ourselves to be. Perhaps you're one that has clients. You're in sales or whatever business you're in, you have clients, and you told yourself at one point, I will tell the truth to my client 100% of the time. 
perfect time to laugh there, Brian. And you find now that you're, okay, I can live with 90% of the time I will tell the truth to my client. Or maybe you're a parent of young kids and you know that you just have come to hate bedtime. You know you should spend this time with your kids, but it's easier for you to disappear behind the laptop and go back to work and leave it up to your spouse. Because at least at work, you're respected. <laughs> I mean, there's all sorts of ways that we, we know we should do this, but we find ourselves doing this. Compromise. So Carrie, at one point in the book, talks about when he was a young leader, he's a very uh, solid leader, loves to learn leadership, and he was trying to decide what's going to uh, allow him to reach his capacity as a leader. And so he started realizing that, that he wanted to be competent as a leader, that competency was what he was striving for. So he went to conferences, he read leadership books, he, he listened to, to different leaders and how they presented, and he tried different things, trying to become more and more competent. And then along the way, he learned that competency doesn't determine capacity. Let me say that again. Competency doesn't determine capacity. So what does? Now, don't put the next screen on yet. I want to ask you first. Any of you read the book? Competency doesn't determine capacity. So what does? Character. Character. At another point in the book, he says this, your competency leaves the first impression, but your character leaves the lasting one. So let me tell you about my pastor growing up. I grew up at All Saints in Worthington. Some of you know that. And my pastor was a beloved man named David Ollery. We had an associate pastor. Her name was Elizabeth Eaton. Maybe you've heard of her. She's now our national bishop. But our lead pastor was David Ollery. Now, David was a loved pastor, but it wasn't for his preaching. <laughs> he was... It was, keep in mind, this was a different day and age. He was a pastor who would go up into the pulpit, pretend there's a pulpit here, and he would put out his manuscript and he would read from it. And he had a kind of a monotone voice that went on. He preached a lot longer than the associate Bishop Eaton. Some of you know that here. The lead pastor preaches longer than the associate. And here's the craziest part of it. So he, this was a day and an age when he'd get into the pulpit and the ushers would dim the lights. And there was this weekly ritual that my family did where my dad would do this motion in worship. <laughs> and my mom... <laughs> and it was like a weekly ritual, but... but so Pastor Ollery was not really known for his sermons, yet the congregation was usually full. So what was it that the people were drawn to him? And I know that a church is more than just the pastor, so don't hear me saying that. It's about each other and what activities and service and whatever else leads you in. But what was it about him that people loved? 
See, he died, unfortunately, of a kidney transplant that didn't go well, and his funeral was packed, like standing room only in the sanctuary, and then they did a live feed in the fellowship hall. Here's what it was about him. Character. Everyone knew this guy had character. He cared about us. He loved us. He showed that in how he conducted his ministry, and we knew that we were loved. We knew that he valued this community. So here's a question. What do you want said at your funeral? <laughs> You've probably been asked that before, but what do you want said at your funeral about you? If people, your family, your loved ones, your kids, friends are all there. What do you hope is said about you when you've passed on? There were three men that attended a funeral of one of their friends, and they watched as speaker after speaker got up, and they said amazingly wonderful, nice tributes to the person who had just passed. And so these three men went out to lunch afterward to talk about it, and they said, wow, that was so powerful, what was said there. What do you hope people say about us when we die? And so one guy went around, went around the table and they shared, and one guy said, you know, I hope, I hope that they say, wow, he was a loving father and a terrific spouse. And the second man said, you know, I, I spent my life in medicine, and, and I hope that people say, he loved his patients, and he cared for them deeply. And the third guy thought for a minute, and he said, you know, I hope they say, look, he's moving. <laughs> what do you want said at your funeral? I, uh, I have the privilege, and I do call it a privilege, and it's an honor to be able to walk beside families when they lose a loved one. And I, 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 I know it sounds weird, but I enjoy hearing about the person through other people's eyes. And, and one quick observation about that, it's, it's amazing how quickly the person who's passed becomes perfect. <laughs> it's almost always descriptions of how great and loving and kind, it, but there are times when that's not the case. Another thing I hear all the time is, well, I know they didn't really go to church, but they believed in God. Which, let's be honest, God is not up there with an attendance pad. That's not what heaven is about. Hopefully, we're here because it's response to the love of God that we already have. But there are times, and most of the time not, thankfully, but there are times when the person who's passed wasn't a good parent, might have been abusive, might have ignored his or her children. And, and so it's hard and it's awkward when you have a funeral where you're, you're honoring the life, but nobody really liked the person. So what do you want said at your funeral. And if, if it's something, if you're afraid of the answer of what's going to be said at your funeral, here's the good news. You're still breathing. <laughs> you can change what might be said. And that's part of what he talks about in his book. But there's going to come a time, and this is a very humbling thing to admit, there's going to come a time when people gather around a table and they'll remember you with a single sentence. 
What do you want that sentence to be? Oh, Doug, yeah. Uh, he was a sad Browns fan, but an active big green egg chef. <laughs> Past the spaghetti. <laughs> I mean, what's that single sentence going to be? The Apostle Paul actually struggled with, with wanting to do the right things and having a hard time doing the right things. And in the book of Romans, he said this. Do we have that slide? There it is. Yes. I do not understand myself. I want to do what is right, but I do not do it. Instead, I do the very thing I hate, for I want to do good, but I do not. I do not do the good I want to do. Instead, I'm always doing the sinful things I do not want to do. This has become my way of life. When I want to do what is right, I always do what is wrong. There is no happiness in me. Who can set me free from my sinful old self? Now think, this is Paul. This is maybe, it could be argued, he spread Christianity more than Jesus did. Like, we are a global religion because of him. He spread it throughout the planet. And he's struggling with doing the, the wrong thing. And what is the right thing to do? How do we continue in our walk with Jesus to be more like what Jesus wants us to be? Matthew, in the book of Matthew, Jesus says this, For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, often when we hear this passage, we think, we think that Jesus is talking about how to become a Christian or how to get into heaven, or something. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about this life right now. What does it look like for us to live more of the way that Jesus talks about, like in the Beatitudes, where we not only love our neighbor as ourselves, but we love our enemies, and we do good to those who cause us harm. We know how hard that is to do. And so the gate is narrow, and the road is hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it, but what he's talking about is how do we embrace the teachings that he teaches and step more into that instead of compromising who we really want to be. Paul, finally, when he kind of came to an answer on this, he says, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank God. I want to say this again. This, this is not about earning God's favor. I think that's important to say. You already have it. Nothing you can do will take that away from you. You already have God's favor. What this is about is living into the way of life that Jesus shows us that is true life, not compromising it for something other than. So 10 years ago or so, when I got divorced, I went off for a silent retreat at Gethsemane Abbey. I have a picture of it here to show you. Gethsemane Abbey. And um, it's led by Trappist monks, and it's silent, as I said. Really good idea for extreme extrovert to go on a silent retreat for four days. God. 
it sucked. I mean, I thought I would have like this eye-opening experience. I, would, I was going to work on my character and who I am as a follower of Jesus, and I did some of that, but, but I got really, really bored. And after the first five minutes, <laughs> I went to the bourbon trail in Kentucky instead. And I'd dabble with silence, and then I'd go do something else, and, da and then I just couldn't do it. And, what, and I'm not blasting silent monasteries. I'm not blasting retreats. I think they're important. But what I discovered, and I think this is an important discovery, I discovered that for me, working on my character, working on who I am as a pastor and as a, a follower of Jesus is best done when I'm interacting with you when I'm interacting with all of you and going through daily life. That's where the work takes place. So how do we work on that? We'll close with the three things that Kerry lifts up here. He says the first thing, three steps you can do to hopefully find that you're not compromising your character. First is, and this is almost countercultural today, take responsibility, right? Sometimes in the church, we call it confession. <laughs> like, own your stuff. Take responsibility. It's so easy today in social media or even on the media we see, it's so much easier to blame someone else. Blame that party. Blame that president. Blame that leader. Blame that whatever. You can blame anyone, that person, that situation. But what happens sometimes when we own it and we take responsibility ourselves and our actions. The second thing is make your talk match your walk. Make your talk match your walk. Here's interesting statistics that he lifts up in the book. Do you know how many lies a typical person, you, me, hears in one day? Average 200. 200. 60% of people tell one lie every 10 minutes in conversation, 60%. Now, I know that sounds extreme, but think about this. We've all done it. We've said things like, yeah, I'll call you. We'll get together. <laughs> Knowing full well, I'm not going to call that person and get set something up, right? Or you've said this, see you in church Sunday. <laughs> kidding, kidding. That was kind of a joke. Was, this isn't guilt 101. <laughs> But you know, we say those things to try to, and Kerry talks a lot, gives a lot of examples of how he's tried to not say those little white lies that are meant to like stop someone from feeling bad. He's tried to be more honest and real because even those little white lies are a compromise to your character. And then here's the last one. Put yourself first when it comes to personal growth. Put yourself first when it comes to personal growth. Whatever it is for you, whether it's devotion time, cooking, taking a walk, whatever it is, put yourself first because it makes you a better spouse, parent, Christian, whatever it is. You need to put yourself first when it comes to times of personal growth. Here's, here's my example that I'll close on. I've had this tradition, this, this uh, ritual for myself ever since I went into ministry and my staff knows it. On Wednesdays, I block it off, 
And Wednesday morning, preferably, I like to write my sermons. And Wednesday afternoon, I take a bike ride. That's my perfect Wednesday. I write my sermons and I take a bike ride in the afternoon. Now I ride with some friends from time to time and I'm on this biking social media app, some of you know it, called Strava. And it's, it's public, much like a Facebook, but for bikers. And my friends from time to time will say, why do you make it public? Do you want your congregation to know that you're biking in the middle of the day? And my answer is always, absolutely. <laughs> Of course I want them to know, because I would hope that they see me taking healthy behavior, taking healthy care of myself and my soul, knowing that it's the perfect time because I've just written something that now I can sit with it for a while and it stews in me and my, often I have better thoughts. And that time makes me a better husband, makes me a better father, and makes me a better pastor. So what is it for you? Put yourself first when it comes to personal growth. Remember, all of this, all of this isn't to earn God's favor. We already have it. It's to strive to live more the life that Jesus calls us to live. Amen.